welcome back to the Comics Course, an offering of Miskatonic University's remote education program offering Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History, as a publicly available podcast. And we are here recording again, delayed by a couple of minutes while my TA Rowan braided her hair, but uh, the ever-quaffed Rowan is here. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. And the never-quaffed Professor Hamby is here. Say hello. Hello. (laughs) It is a beautiful day here on the Miskatonic campus. And uh, I am trying to stay in good spirits because, unfortunately, one of the the things we're primarily going to talk about today is a sad thing for me. uh, And that is the loss of Neil Adams from the world. He passed away just recently from complications of sepsis. And it's... You know, normally when a celebrity, like an actor, passes away, I don't really care. I mean, I might have enjoyed their works, and I feel bad on the same way that I do hearing anybody passed away. But, you know, frankly, millions of people die every day, and I don't know them. And, you know, that has a limited emotional connection. But when it's an artist, somebody whose work I've really enjoyed, even if I didn't know them personally, they still touched my life in a substantial way, and I kind of mourn their passing, and I feel that way about Neil Adams. Have you ever felt that way, hearing about somebody passing away, Rowan? Not yet. Not in my life yet. Not yet. Well, a lot of the uh, artists you follow are of younger generations and not Mm -hmm. passed away yet, probably. Mm -hmm. Um, Although some of them are working hard to kill culture. but um, Rude. But not wrong. (laughs) Rude. But still not wrong. We'll see. Okay, so we have today more Jaffa Cakes. This Ooh. this one from a brand called Melka, uh, which I've seen in some places that sell Jaffa Cakes here in the United States, so I don't think it's an obscure brand or anything. These have a raspberry jelly in them. Mm. They're quite good. And we're going to evaluate two more root beers today. Now, I don't know if any of the people listening to this podcast like our eating of Jaffa Cakes and reviewing root beers. But fortunately, I don't care. So we're going to continue to do it. So let's do the first one, Ro. Oh, and by the way, I have added a page to the comicscourse.org website where we are listing our evaluations. And I'm going on a five-point scale here. Awful is one point. Meh is two points. Then okay, good, and superb. Okay. So I put some water in our little drinking cups first to wash our mouths out of other tastes. And our first one that we're going to evaluate is another plastic bottle one. This is a staple in the United States, A&W Root Beer. Mm-hmm. It is a mass-marketed, well-known, but generally well-respected one. Mm-hmm. Can you hold your cup for me, Rowan? Mm-hmm. Ooh. Let's see how it goes. You don't have to down it all at once. I know, but I'd like to. So what do you think of the A&W? For me, it's always like a solid seven. Solid seven? We're on a one to five scale. Oh, one to five. Oh, uh, sorry, I missed that. Always a solid three. Yeah, I think it's a solid three. It's okay. 
but it's not anything special. Mm-hmm. In some ways, A and W kind of creates the standard for the middle of the road. I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, washing my mouth out. Where is my shark bottle opener? It is here. This is Virgil's handcrafted root beer. Mm-hmm. Now, one difference with this is it uses actual cane sugar. Ooh. Drink your water to... Mm. You want to wash previous taste out of your mouth. Yes, I know I'm being a slightly pretentious for root beer tasting, but I am trying to get an accurate idea of these. I actually really like that. That is really good. It, it, it is above average, so it's above a three. The question is, is it a four or a five? That's hard. It, it's definitely at least a four. I, I kind of want to say five. I really like that. I really like Virgil's, too. Yeah, I'm going to put it at a five. It has a strong sassafras flavor. The sweetness is good. And I personally can tell the difference between cane sugar and high fructose corn sugar. Same, so. and I really prefer... Um, cane sugar. Yeah. It has a richness of flavor to it that's better than mm-hmm. the high fructose, which is just overpoweringly sweet a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to agree. I'm going to give the Virgils a five. So, Virgils, root beer, if anybody who works for Virgils is listening, and I will try to tag you in on social media, uh, you should uh, sponsor the podcast because we just gave you a five out of five. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about Neil Adams while we drink root beer and eat Jaffa cakes. So, there's so much to say about Neil Adams. And he's talked a lot about as an artist. I don't feel qualified to really talk in depth about his art, although I'm certainly going to talk about it some. And I always feel awkward doing these sorts of classes because I'm not a biographer by inclination. And what I mean by that is, many of my colleagues love talking about the biographies of creators, They'll go in depth about Lord Byron and how that affected his writing or John Steinbeck or whoever. And I just generally want to look at the work they produce. And if they meant something that they did not successfully communicate through the work itself, then they failed, in my opinion. Now, that doesn't mean I don't think it can't be worthwhile to look at biographies. As I said to somebody recently... For example, J.R.R. Tolkien, when he said that war did not influence his writing, was just plain wrong. (laughs) It influenced his writing a lot. And so, uh, it it can be useful to look at. Mm -hmm. But it's not my first inclination when doing any sort of uh, literary analysis. And... But for when we're doing a retrospective on somebody's life and talking about their impact, I do think we have to do some of that. But I am primarily going to focus on his impact on the field of graphic literature, specifically American comic books, graphic literature, uh, as we talk about him. So, Neil Adams. I, you've heard the name Neil Adams here before. What do you think of when you hear Neil Adams? Batman. Right. I, I, I think that's a fair cop, as the saying goes. And he is largely remembered for his work at DC... However, it's not entirely fair. So, he he went to work for DC in 1967. That's when he did his first uh, 
gig for them. And he was in the DC offices a lot. He created a character called Dead Man, which has become a fan favorite. I know you've seen some of the DC animated movies with Dead Man mm -hmm. that also feature, you know, Justice League Dark, John Constantine, that kind of thing. He's part of that supernatural circle of characters. And when he went to work for DC, he started getting awards almost instantly for his covers and writing with Dead Man and things like that. Now, Neil Adams is mostly considered an artist, but he has done writing, and even the titles that he is primarily credited as artist on, there are quite a few that he was largely involved with plotting, especially the ones at Marvel with their, frankly, kind of chaotic process. This is something a lot of people don't know, but DC, through most, most of its history, would get a script first, and then they had people assigned, and that's just what happened. At Marvel, it was much more loosey-goosey, especially in the 60s and 70s. So, we'll talk about that process in a second here, but uh, Neil Adams' entrance into the comic book world was not assured. In fact, his first published work was for Archie Comics after others rejected him. And he wrote a, Archie Comics for a while did uh, some superhero comics in the 60s, mm. including a character called The Fly. Now, these have transferred around ownership over the years and been published by different people, as I recall. Um, but The Fly... So... <laughs> I'm sorry, I think this is a funny story. Neil Adams wrote several pages. They were not impressed by them. But there was one panel that worked better than the panel of the artist who eventually did it, like a transformation scene or something. Mm -hmm. And so his first published work was a single panel that he found out about when he came back to the office and found it cut out of the page he had penciled and found that they had just taken it and taped it over the other artist's panel. So that was his first comic book published work was a single panel. Damn, I kind of feel bad for the other artist. <laughs> I know, right? No but, respect. But they liked the other artist's work overall. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and you got to put out a work, right? <laughs> and he... Neil Adams was never a purist. He never worked for a company. He worked everywhere. Archie had a paycheck for him, he'd work for him. DC had a paycheck, Marvel had a paycheck, um, and on and on and on. And he wasn't exclusive to the comic book world. He did a lot of work in illustration also for advertising companies and things like that. In fact, by the 80s, he had largely left the comic book world. Not entirely. He continued to do things in comic books. But he operated his own uh, studio in Manhattan. And a lot of the work the studio did was storyboards for TV shows and movies. And in fact, one criticism he often gave of the comic book world is that it was too insular and didn't understand the bigger world. And... Here's a quote from him from an interview he did. I think it was for the comic book resource guide. Quote, It was sort of the same way in comic books. The things that they were doing wrong would have been so evident to somebody from advertising or book publishing. Any of these worlds outside of comic books. But comic books were so insulated they didn't know they were wrong. They didn't know that they were backward and foolish. Now this isn't coming from somebody who's a non-comic book creator just slagging on comics. This is coming from somebody who loves comics, but had worked outside the comic book industry and continued to do so. And we'll talk about how he bucked the trends in the industry in a minute. 
Now, w- you said that you think of Batman when you think of Neil Adams, mm-hmm. and I said that's a fair cop. Now, however, he did do a lot of work for Marvel. His run on Avengers is considered absolutely iconic. Mm-hmm. And his run on X-Men has been collected into specialized collections of his work several times mm-hmm. that are readily available. And, and they're gorgeous work. And, and I, how he ended up there, I thought was kind of amusing. He literally was sitting in the offices at DC when Jim Steranko came by. Now, in an, a dead man story, he had drawn a panel and described it with this weird, you know, psychedelia as a Steranko effect. I think it was Dead Man himself who referred to it as that. And apparently Steranko found it amusing. Steranko mm-hmm. was known for very stylistic work. And he convinced Neil Adams to come over and talk to Stan Lee. And Stan Lee basically offered him his pick of titles. Now, Stan Lee was known to do this. Stan Lee was very... He wanted people to feel special. and But if you asked for something he couldn't give you, he might then kind of back off that. But he started with giving you the world... And then if you asked for a piece of the world he couldn't give you, he'd kind of back off. <laughs> uh, but Neil Adams asked, well, what's your worst-selling title? And he said, X-Men. In fact, it was about to be canceled. Wow. And Neil Adams took over his art, and the writer was taking over after the other writer leaving, and it was left on a cliffhanger with no actual written-out plot or resolution or anything. And the other writer, the writer didn't seem to really give a crap and was kind of phoning it in. So Neil Adams just kind of ran with it and just kind of plotted and drew out the whole next issue and then gave it over to the writer for dialoguing. Mm. And that's part of what I mean by, you know, he, he, wa- he did more than art, <laughs> you know. He was often involved with plots, even if he wasn't officially a writer. And he created a number of characters over the years doing all that. I already mentioned Dead Man, which he created, which led to some immediate awards in the industry. But at Marvel, uh, he created several characters. Perhaps the one that you've seen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe very recently. Mm-hmm. Hawkeye's wife. Oh. Now, they have not named her, per se, really, on the show. But did... At the okay, a little bit of a spoiler here for those who've not seen the Hawkeye series on Disney Plus. But at the end, when he retrieves the watch, and it's an Agents of Shield watch, and it has a number nineteen embossed on it, mm-hmm. that means she was Agent Nineteen. Mm-hmm. Agent Nineteen in the comics was Bobby Morse, aka Mockingbird, oh. and the wife of Hawkeye. Now, uh. The split, uh, uh, of course, between the show and the comics is, A, that Mockingbird and the comics later divorced Hawkeye, and they didn't have children. Oh. Uh, And and in fact, in one amusing scene of talking to Kate Bishop said, Hawkeye is the best friend you'll ever have, but never date him. (laughs) I think she disagrees in the movies, though, I guess. (laughs) Well, in uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's confusing because there's actually a Bobby Morse Mockingbird from the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show. What? Right. Um, I think the it was uh, uh, starring Adriana Palaki, who, in fact, uh, was Supergirl in the Supergirl pilot for CW that never went... 
Supergirl or was it Wonder Woman? No, it was a Wonder Woman pilot. Uh, and it never went anywhere. And she's now doing a show for Fox, I think, called The Orville, uh, which I saw one or two episodes of and was okay, but, yeah. Anyway, she... Marvel seems willing to ignore the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. continuity at this point. Yeah. Um, it didn't lead to a lot of success or a lot of attention, like the things in the movies and Disney Plus have. So I would not be surprised to see it just ignored ongoing. Which amuses me because we keep coming back to this theme in this course of comics or mythology. But in fact, you could argue that any body of works that are tied together and go on long enough with enough installments are all going to become mythologies because of these storytelling problems. And in fact, we see that with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that it is now doing that. Which, and it's supposed to be completely anti-mythology. Completely coherent, completely defined, and yet... But it's making buckets of money, so they're just telling writers to ignore stuff as long as they can make it sell. Well, and sometimes you make mistakes. And sometimes the best way to handle those mistakes is to pretend they didn't happen. Especially if they weren't popular anyway. Yeah. Which is exactly what leads to comic books being mythology, too. As well as people not wanting to be confined. So, where did he go from there? Well, he kind of reinvented comics from there. (laughs) So, I have on the screen for you to see, uh, artistically, Mm -hmm. an issue of Batman. This is issue 186. It is not Neil Adams' art at all. Mm -hmm. However, this came out, uh, cover date of November, the same year that Neil Adams started his freelance work for DC. Hmm. Okay. And Batman in the 1960s was very influenced by the campiness of the Adam West TV show. Have you ever seen that? No. I've never even heard of that. You've never heard of the Batman TV show from the 60s starring Adam West and Burt Ward? Oh, that one, yeah. Sorry, my brain just completely blanked. I mean, it was a show so campy that it literally was the origin... Well, not the origin, but it could have been the origin of the phrase, Jump the Shark. (laughs) I mean, there was an episode where Batman is hanging from a helicopter and uses bat shark repellent. Because everything from his utility belt, which always had whatever he needed, um, was prefixed with bat something or other. The writers knew what they were doing with that shark. It, the show was silly. It, it was over-the-top silly and funny and emphasized those things. And the comics largely followed that, wanting to you know, capture some of that popularity. And you can see here from the comic that, look at the art style. Mm. It's a pretty simple art. Now, it's better than comics were in the 40s. Art has definitely improved. But the colors are very flat. The people, if you look at the goons and the cops, their faces are all exactly the same. Yeah. And... They're basically copy and pasted. While the figures are anatomically correct, there's no dynamism to them. There's a scene here where Batman is jumping over some wheels rolling on the ground and he looks like a action figure that's been posed. You don't mm-hmm. get a sense of motion or energy from it. It looks like they literally took a Batman action figure reference. Right. Now keep in mind, this is the same time period when Jack Kirby began doing his most famous work at Marvel. And if you want an example of why Jack Kirby blew people's minds, 
compare it to this. Hmm. Now, I'm going to close this out, and I'm going to show you a comic. This was one of the comics I read when I was a young man, boy, child, whatever. I, uh, when I was a young homo sapiens. Um, and it is the first comic that made me realize that comics could be literature. Mm-hmm. And not just entertainment. Which may seem obvious now, but to a young boy in the 70s it wasn't. This is The Night of the Reaper. Published four years later. Certainly not Neil Adams' first work on Batman. But still fairly early. It was cover dated December. Published 1971. Issue 237. Uh, Cover dated December, but actually published in October. So it was kind of a Halloween-themed issue. That, That explains the cover art. And look at the art. Ooh, that's pretty. And look at the figures. Look at their movement. Now, this is a low-resolution scan, so it's Mm -hmm. not as good as if we had, you know, something really good to look at. But even with this crappy scan... But they aren't... They don't look stiff. They look like... Like how you would see a comic now. Right. It looks professional, not stiff. The colors are good. Everyone looks different and not copy and pasted. And he brought, uh, Neil Adams is cited for his naturalism all the time. Uh, and you see it here, and part of why you say it looks like a comic now is because we live in a post-Neil Adams world. Mm-hmm. It's just that simple. And he brought ideas from, like, realistic illustration and advertising into comics. And when these figures move, they move. One of them's holding another in a chokehold, and you get a sense of movement even slight movement from that chokehold. Uh, it's great. Now, the storyline in this is a somewhat complicated one. But basically, Robin, who's now in college, is out with some buddies of his at a Halloween event, and they see somebody dressed up as Robin getting the shit beat out of him. Hmm. So they intervene, and then he switches to his Robin costume to follow where he finds somebody dressed as Batman who's been murdered. And then this figure in a robe with a scythe and a skull mask attacks him. Now tell me that is not an amazing illustration right there. That's beautiful. It is gorgeous. Now as the story goes on, we find Robin gets hurt. Uh, The actual Batman finds him. One of the things Neil Adams did both in his own plotting and working with the writers, was that they moved away from that campy 60s Adam West era Batman and brought Batman back, not to the extreme brooding that he got to in the 80s of, you know, when Grim Dark was super marketable. Um, but they did make him more brooding and they made him a detective. They made him the Dark Knight detective. and But also gave him a lot of human touchstones. And people he connected to. So he wasn't just angsty. Right. And they made him interesting. I mean, look at the art for Batman here. Mm. He looks like a person in a costume. Yeah. And with amazing physique. Now, I I do want to point out this panel here. Notice they have several Marvel characters at the costume party. (laughs) There's a Thor who, instead of a Molnir, has an actual, you know, like... Household hammer in his belt. And we see a Spider-Man over there 
who says, I'm dressed up as Web Webslinger Lad. <laughs> These feel like subtle um, gifs. Mm-hmm. J- jibs? Yeah, jibs. Yeah, they are. But they're meant in good humor. Yeah. I mean, remember, Neil Adams uh, uh, had work, uh, for, worked for both companies and continued mm-hmm. to. In fact, one... I mentioned that he thought there were things silly in the industry. One of them was that because of the rivalry between DC and Marvel, most creators, if they crossed the line, so to speak, would use a pseudonym for their work at the other company. Neil Adams didn't. Oh. He just kind of dared them to call him to to to, to attack him for it, and they didn't. Because um, he's Neil Adams. Well, and this was before he was the Neil Adams. He just rejected it by ignoring it. Mm-hmm. Now, I do want to mention this uh, issue is edited by Julia Schwartz, uh, who we've talked about in relationship to Karen Berger and others. Uh, he was still sort of a line editor at the time. The art is by Neil Adams and Dick uh, Giarano. Uh, the story by Denny O'Neill, who worked with Neil Adams a lot, along with ideas, it says, by Bernie Wrightson and Harlan Ellison. What? I mean, what a combo on a single issue. I mean, Bernie Wrightson is a master of horror art um, and comics, and a pretty damn good writer himself. His version, his illustrated version of uh, Frankenstein is absolutely mind-blowing in its artistic Mm -hmm. quality. And Harlan Ellison, I mean, this was not that long after he was writing classics like The City on the Edge of Forever for Star Trek. I mean, Harlan Ellison, who's done everything from Star Trek to Scooby-Doo, literally, Mm -hmm. uh, played himself in multiple episodes of Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. Uh, Which, which for those who haven't seen it, Mystery Incorporated was a sort of, you at first think it's a reboot, but then turns out to be a prequel of the 1970s Scooby-Doo that was made in the 2000s and is bizarrely enjoyable for both kids and adults. It's a superior Scooby-Doo. It, it is very good. Um, it, and it's a rare trick to make something that little kids can enjoy and grown-ups can watch it and not be in pain at the same time, and it managed it. But the character in the uh, with the green neckerchief there and mm-hmm. the big hat and glasses mm-hmm. is Denny O'Neill, the writer of the issue. Yes. That's great. I know. So then we find the Reaper attacking, and the whole plot line, it turns out, is that the people that were attacked were Nazis who had fled Germany with Jewish gold, and they they were dressed up in Batman, and one of them was dressed in a Batman costume, so the Robin was attacked because the Nazis thought he might have been a cohort you know, dressing up to go along with his friend Batman. And so it's a story about these, you know, uh, uh, criminals and Nazis uh, trying to evade justice with this stolen Jewish gold. And the Reaper is attacking because we find out that he's a Jewish doctor who is actually a friend of Batman's and earlier in it uh, treats uh, Dick uh, uh, Robin after he's injured and he's trying to kill them because they're Nazis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is a prison camp survivor. Towards the end of it, he flees from Batman and ends up on top of a dam 
where these kids are coming across, and in his self-righteous rage, he's about to kill one of these college kids when falling off the college kid's neck is this necklace that gets wrapped up in the handle of the scythe and falls and the, the, the pendant falls in the face of the reaper and it's a star of David. He's Jewish. And he was about to kill this Jew while, you know, claiming moral superiority for killing the killer of Jews. Mm-hmm. And then he steps backwards off the ledge and it's kept a little vague. Was it an accident because he's disoriented or does he commit suicide? But he falls down off the dam. And that is the end of the story. No happy feelings from this one, folks. No, but it it, it was literature. Mm. It, it's a story about morality. And that, in many ways, is the tragic hero that we talked about back uh, in the episode about intellect as a heroic trait. And it's not the only time that he's done that. In fact, we're going to talk a lot about his impact being involved in comics with additional meaning. Uh, I I will also mention that while I was thinking about Neil Adams, uh, I had to think... I, I had could not find this in a publishable source anywhere. Unfortunately, I think this story, because of what's happened in our society, people have chosen not to republish it. Um, but one of the magazines he worked for was for Warren Publishing, and it was called Creepy. He did a story for it in issue 75 of Creepy Magazine called Thrill Kill, which is this guy standing up on top of a roof with a rifle just randomly murdering people until he suicides by cops. It's brilliantly drawn. The art is amazing. It is terrifying. Now, it was published at a time... Ignore the ghosts. It was published at a time that there hadn't been that many mass shootings in America. Mm -hmm. And it was disturbing, but probably not disturbing the way it is now where we have so many of these events in our country. Every few months, where's the shooter? Not even every few months. I mean, there are so many of them now that they're not all reported. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just the truth. So, what else did he do at DC that stirred things up? I mean, he was a good Batman artist. He wrote an emit well, drew and was involved with the development of an amazing story. But what else did he do? Well... Some of the Batman stuff has had ongoing major impacts in both Batman and Green Arrow mythos for the CW because he invented the League of Assassins. He invented Ra's al Ghul and all that stuff, which has been so influential that it's been collected in its own editions, The Daughter of the Demon. He created one of my personal favorite characters, Man Bat, which a lot of good has been done with. He created fan favorite Green Lantern, John Stewart. Stewart. Yep, that's a direct... Uh, creation of Neil Adams. I didn't know that. Yep. Uh, and in fact, almost over at Marvel created the first black superhero, but the idea was rejected. Oh, of course. And to this day, John Stewart is one of the most beloved African American superheroes out there. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk about 
what he did with Green Lantern, Green Arrow, uh, even outside the involvement of John Stewart, uh, with Denny O'Neill, he cre- he basically s- killed Green Lanterns Volume One, restarted as Volume Two, and created a storyline where in Green Arrow, who had been very rich, shaved down to a goatee and the sort of you know gentleman archer aesthetic that he's well known for now. And the two of them went cross-country so that Hall Jordan, Green Lantern, who spends all of his time up in space, could see what's happening in his own world. And it was a form of social consciousness in comics that was pretty much unheard of at the time and featured a legendary issue where Speedy, the incredibly clean-cut sidekick of Green Arrow is revealed to be a heroin addict. Damn. Right. I mean, they went right for the jugular. They weren't pulling punches. Uh, It was very socially conscious, and unfortunately it didn't sell well. They had a good run, but as much as critics love them, as much as the college campuses love them, it wasn't enough to make up for the kids who just wanted to see superheroes hit each other. So it ended up being left aside for new work. However, while that may not have set sales records, it did electrify a subgroup of readers. A subgroup of readers who grew up to be the next generation of creators. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anybody can argue that the comics world would be the same without that run of social consciousness, telling people that they could take superheroes and create stories with meaning beyond, you know, just superhero fights. And it didn't stop there. I mean, yes, he, you know was involved in creating comics that talked about issues, but he did it outside of the comics, too. In fact, here's a little bit of trivia that some people don't know. Uh, A lot of people know that Siegel and Schuster had to fight for some of their rights associated with Superman, that when they signed over the rights to National Publications slash DC Comics, that there was some slightly hinky stuff, especially with some of their ongoing contributions after the initial rights purchase. Um, but what they don't know is that the comics industry was in many ways divided about how to respond to this. There were a lot of writers and artists who just kind of went, oh, we shouldn't make waves. You know, they give us paychecks. Let's not make waves. While Neil Adams kind of went, fuck that. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and Neil Adams was a champion for Siegel and Schuster and a champion for artists' rights. In fact, uh, we talked a little bit about Jack Kirby one episode about how he had to uh, fight to get some of his art back. Neil Adams fought much of that fight for him. Jack Kirby wouldn't have gotten a bunch of his art back if it hadn't been for Neil Adams. And they also returned some of Neil Adams' art to him. So he he fought for the industry. He fought for rights. He fought for artists to be respected in the comic book field and to be able to get their original creations back. And it didn't stop there. 
Uh, he was heavily involved with the publication of a seminal work called We Spoke Out, Comic Books and the Holocaust, collecting uh, published stories about the Holocaust. He was very concerned uh, about anti-Semitism. And he also could be an amusing figure. He was, for example, a believer in this pseudoscience set of theories about the Earth expanding that could allow for a hollow world of dinosaurs inside and stuff like that. And would uh, guest on uh, AM Coast to Coast, which is kind of a show for supernatural conspiracy theories and stuff. Um, I don't know if he really believed that stuff. Apparently he did. But... You know, if you're going to believe in a harmless kook theory, you know, or, or let me back up. If you're going to believe in a kook theory, you know, that's a pretty fun one to believe in. You know, it's not flat earthers and clear denial of things that are observable. You're not believing in conspiracies that are going to end up causing harm to people. You just believe the dinosaurs live inside a hollow earth. That's not going to hurt anyone anyway. Uh, right. And it actually kind of in a weird way makes me love him a little bit more. Um, still so, a little weird, though. Yeah, it's still a little weird. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. So, that's Neil Adams. Um, what do you think? Because I know you didn't know a lot about Neil Adams... Do you feel like you know a little bit more about him at this point? Definitely, because he's mainly talked about as the Batman artist. Right, and I think that's kind of unfair. He's done a lot of stuff, and some of his uh, deep cuts, to use a music world analogy, are absolutely amazing. Although I, his, his Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and Batman stuff are still my favorites. Uh, but I am also biased because they were things I read when I was little. <laughs> so... Okay, we're going to leave it at that. Uh, this is not the most authoritative Neil Adams review ever by any stretch. There are tons of interviews out there with him. He was perfectly willing to talk to reporters and people with interests. And I encourage people to go pick up the collected Batmans by Neil Adams and things like that. And we will be talking about those again because we have an upcoming episode where we're going to talk about iconic Batman works for people who don't read comics. And you can bet your ass there's going to be some Neil Adams in there. All right. So we're going to go and keep reading comics. Bye. Bye.